The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. So, yes, this is going to be uh, something completely different. This is going to be uh, not so much a formal lecture as, well, propounding a series of theses and inviting response, at least to, to some extent. Um, the, I'm, gonna, I have, I'm handing this out so you can look at them and ponder them, and I'll invite questions and pushback after each one. We may have to curtail that at some point because... Um, I don't, you know, we, we're not going to be able to go delve into all the questions perhaps that are raised after each one, but at least want to invite some feedback as we move along because there's, these are building on each other. And yeah, it, it turns out that number five is completely bogus. We may just, I don't know, stop there and we can skip all the rest. I don't know. But um, these are originally 21. I, I added eight more. Okay, you got eight free theses. 29 disputed theses concerning religious liberty. This title is a very 16th, 17th century kind of title. Um, university lecturer would put forward theses for, for debate. And uh, that's kind of what I'll be doing here. I'm, I am still very much pondering, wrestling through this, and really want all of your help in um, crystallizing these ideas. This actually originated in a very lively fireside debate with Shane Morris out there on that patio after Convivium 2019. That's when I wrote up the original 21, sent them to Eric Enlow, uh, who you heard from earlier, for feedback in response to his feedback uh, and my reflections over COVID uh, added another eight and significantly rewrote them. So, all right, without further ado and meta discourse. Let's launch into the first one. Oh, well, there's a little bit more meta discourse, which is to say um, something, this is something that Eric raised that uh, isn't, real, isn't really incorporated in this yet, but in talking about religious freedom in here, I am broadly uh, doing it within the frame that a modern would instinctively think of when they hear religious freedom, which is, or almost any freedom, which is the freedom of an individual within the polity, or at most perhaps the freedom of a small group community within the larger polity. To an early modern, it wouldn't be at all um, obvious that that's what you were talking about when you spoke of a freedom of liberty or a religious liberty. You might very well be talking about the liberty of the entire polity, the entire commonwealth, nation, whatever, to exercise its religion. Uh, and that's, that's part of what I actually deal with in my dissertation. Oh, which I meant to plug here, too. But anyway, if you're interested, my dissertation, The Peril and Promise of Christian Liberty, is partly looking at how Hooker is trying to reframe the question of Christian liberty um, within the liberty of the Christian commonwealth to, to act as a corporate agent, right? So uh, we tend to think of freedom as something that is purely the property of individuals, However, historically, and I would argue in a, in a more full-fledged concept of freedom, we, don't ex- we do not actually experience our agency purely as individuals. In fact, we experience our agency probably less as individuals than we do as members of uh, various collectives. Even, even in modernity, where we're programmed to think in terms of our individual agency, we still experience our agency as members, as part of a group. And so... Freedom, the experience of freedom also includes the freedom of the group to act as a, a singular whole, which, of course, means limitation of the freedom of its members, right? For, the, the, for the, the group to do one thing, that means that everyone in the group can't do their own thing. Uh, so for early moderns, it was important to speak of the liberty of the, that the commonwealth had a responsibility to honor God as commonwealth. And so the commonwealth had to be able to exercise its religious liberty before God to act. Uh, and therefore, perhaps, the, the, the idea of a church establishment, which we think of a church establishment as a curtailment of religious liberty, they thought originally as an expression of religious liberty. Right? The, you know, uh, Prussia expresses its 
religious liberty as Prussia by establishing a certain church. So uh, I touch on that kind of dimension in here, but I don't really um, discuss it in depth. This is still primarily framed in terms of how should we think about the proper extent of the religious freedoms of the individual within a polity. Okay, so um, religious liberty, thesis one, I would argue must be distinguished into three distinct categories, each of which, while closely related, must be evaluated on its own terms. First, freedom of conscience. Second, freedom of religious speech, which is, say, teaching, writing, proselytizing, etc. And third, freedom of religious exercise, which is to say, assembly, worship, rituals, and actions, or refraining from actions on the basis of religious convictions. So I'm going to, we'll dedicate several theses to each one of these, but just to begin with, I think very often when we talk about religious liberty, we are, nowadays we kind of instinctively include all three of these. We think, so you, you have to have all three of these to have religious liberty. To early moderns, that wasn't at all obviously the case. Um, they quite often protected freedom of conscience while not necessarily protecting the other two. Um, and it, in fact, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the most vivid example of this I came across is um, in Althusius, Althusius' Politica. He has a great discussion. And he basically says, like, like of course, we do not, like, we would never um, su- support persecution of, any, of anyone for their religious beliefs. However, that doesn't mean the magistrate should allow them to, you know, build churches or worship or whatever, right? Um, and for us, like, I mean, to say, I mean, we, we would, the threshold of persecution is like way, you know, I mean, any meddling with our religious behavior is persecution. Certainly, you're not even allowed to publicly worship. Well, that sounds like persecution. But persecution had a very specific meaning in the early modern context, which was um, actively trying to make you change your beliefs through coercion. I mean, that, that's what the Inquisition, the purpose of the Inquisition was to hunt you, like, even if you were outwardly conforming, to sort of find someone who looked like they were outwardly conforming, and be like, eh, no, I don't think you really are, and I'm going to find out, and now I've figured out that you actually are a heretic, and now I'm going to try to, you know, force you not to be a heretic. So that is what persecution meant. Um, other forms of restraint of religious liberty were not seen as persecution in the strict sense. Okay, so obviously this is just kind of a foundational one. We're going to dig into each of these, but any questions about thesis one before we continue? Yes. Do you have a, do you have a working definition of the word religion? Uh, I give it a bit of one in thesis three. That's so. Just we'll dig, we'll expand that. Yeah, but that's important. It's, it's outside of Christendom. It could be Satanism or Islam or Jedi. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's 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 dig into that when I get to thesis three because yeah, I think. I do, um, that is, I don't know, an unresolved thing a bit in in these is that I am to some extent trying to frame this in generalizable terms, Um, but I am doing it from uh, from our situation as the heirs of a a Christian tradition of thinking about what religion is. So, yes? Are you going to... uh get to later the, the definition of or, or distinguish between types of coercion. Yes. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll wait. A bit. Yep. Are, um, so conscience, are, are you going to elaborate exactly? Yeah, okay, I'm going to elaborate on that. Let's, let's not talk about these, these ones. This is, <laughs> okay. We'll pause after a number of them, but it probably doesn't make sense to pause after one because, yeah. Just, okay. Um, the, all right, so the first, so that, um, the first, freedom of conscience, I'm going to argue, deserves absolute protection in law. The latter two, being matters of action, deserve qualified protection. Okay, again, I'm going to expound on the argument for those. But, um, but this distinction of matters of belief and matters of action is pretty uh, important in the Magisterial Reformation. Of course, belief and action are not... They must be distinguished while not being separated. Our beliefs, all of our beliefs, will in some way, shape, or form, somewhere down the road, issue in or, or affect our actions. Um, so 
from that standpoint to say you have absolute freedom of belief, you have absolute freedom of belief, but absolute unfreedom of action, you'd say what's the like what's the point of the beliefs if you can't act on the beliefs? That's hmm? That's oh, yeah. I have, I have a good article arguing right. that exactly what Hobbes saying. He makes you have absolute freedom of belief, but you have zero freedom of action. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so Hobbes is Hobbes is instructive because Hobbes basically represents a, a radicalization of this distinction. I mean what Hobbes is doing is in some ways I don't want to say consistent with, but um, anyway, it is uh, intelligible within the tradition of how these distinctions are talked about the Magister Reformation, but he absolutizes it in a way that they recognize that you never can. Yeah. Okay, so next uh, six theses are dedicated to elucidating the city of freedom of conscience. So I'm going to define freedom of conscience, in this context at least, as the freedom to form and maintain religious convictions, and this is my attempt to define religion here then, that is to say, convictions about the nature of God and the duties that we owe him. Okay? So, that is, specifically religious convictions would be, um, you know, a, a religion may also have teachings regarding other matters, but those teachings are religious in as much as they name a duty before God, um, a duty vis-a-vis God that is involved even in those, those earthly matters. Yes? So I, I've been thinking about this politically um, as time it was actually internet last night. The left is, is, is becoming a kind of religious regime in many, many ways. Right. And yet the, the, the problem is... Are they a religion? Is it religious or not? Because there's no appeal to a transcendent God. Can you have a, something considered a religion where there's just an appeal to a transcendent idea of justice? Yeah. So, you know, that's... You know, I thought about saying convictions about the nature of the deity, convictions about the nature of the transcendent. You know, um, this is something I want, you know, some input on here is, you know, can we come up with can we come up with a definition of religion that is flexible enough to incorporate? Yeah, because they, they want to say there's something yeah. that's binding on, on you, and you must recognize it. Which is, even though there might not be a transcendent, even there might not be a God that's mentioned. Right. My hesitation there is that seems to be just eliding the moral and the religious, right? The idea, the idea of some kind of supreme moral norm that gives us... Uh, that over sort of overrides all other duties. That's just you know natural law in the most general sense, right? I wouldn't say that in its to say that that's a religious claim to believe in some kind of supreme set of moral norms. I think is way over broadening the definition of religion, and so that's where I do wonder when people say like, you know, we have progressivism as a new religion. Because it has this moral, like moral zealotry, that doesn't seem to be sufficient. Um, I think we'd have to identify some other features to argue that it's a religion. What what would those other features be? I don't know. That's what I'm crowdsourcing here. Can so, there be kind of a religious nature to what they're doing without it being a religion? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, right, one way of trying to define it is in terms of, uh, I mean, a religion is constituted by, by rituals, by, by, by community rituals, but often they usually maybe have elements of sacrifice and purification. Um, Seems like we have that. Right. So this is what, you know, like, Josh Mitchell would, you know, makes the argument that progressivism has a lot of the trappings of, Christianity just without the actual promise of redemption, right? Um, right, right. Uh, Peter Harrison has an interesting discourse on uh, religio scientia in the modern period and how you get to more from the meeting as a kind of almost a feeling of piety, a, vir- a virtue of piety. Mm-hmm. Um, and devotion um, into an elective system, even with the wording of Calvin's Institutes, um, it properly translated might not need the article. 
institutes of Christian religion, not institutes of the Christian religion. So if you maintain religio as a pietistic type of theology, <coughs> then I think it fits. Um, as a, if then you start adding even body of knowledge, maybe um, transcendence, then it probably doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if the transcendence is even necessary in the original virtue. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think the definition I've given here is fairly faithful to what early moderns would think they meant by religion. Um, again, they're formed by a Christian theistic tradition. And so, yeah, they might be a vaguely, vaguely aware that there are kind of animist religions or... Um, I mean, they're not really aware of, like, Buddhism and Taoism and that sort of thing, I don't think. So. Buddhism, I mean, depending on a Buddhist Tradition is equal. I mean, Buddha himself is atheist. Right. I don't, I don't know what you do with it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm just trying to think. I can't. I can't really think of any awareness with that kind of religion uh, among early modern writers. But what about the nature of scientism as it's sort of touted as a, an unquestionable authority today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea of religion as. Uh, Naming whatever is your supreme epi supreme epistemic authority is ultimately your object of religious devotion. I think that's maybe a portion that it gives the law. Yeah, yeah. I should I should clarify by the way my, my purpose in this right because we could we could go on forever on on this point. My my purpose here is is to try to elucidate as I understand it the structure of the idea of religious liberty as it has, as it did develop within Christian Europe. Um, and, and thus then to perhaps highlight the distance between that and where it has now developed, perhaps just in the last probably 200, I think it's a pretty dramatic development between, say, Thomas Jefferson and today. Um, so... Yeah. So, anyway, so, the, so right. So the definitions that I'm giving here are not really attempting to be globally applicable to anything we might possibly talk about as religion. I want to talk about how Christian Europe started to think about religious freedom. So, okay. Um, but these are these are good ambiguities to to push on. Okay. So, um, th and this is where I want to all right start pushing on the divergence. Okay. So freedom of conscience. Okay. So again, freedom to form and maintain religious convictions. That's what consciences. Um, it's often falsely defended on the ground that individuals are sovereigns of their own conscience and it is their perfect right to decide what to believe. On the contrary, there is no moral right to err. There's no, there's no right to do wrong. Rights are always only rights to do right. Right. Actually, isn't that intentional? The, the yes, right. Yeah. So, uh, false. Therefore, I would say we, we have to affirm that false belief, however freely chosen, is always an evil. That isn't. It's not an unmixed evil. Um, a, a. There's the. Um, what's the what's this classic term for the, like the sincere but erring conscience? Um, I don't think, but you know, it. It, it, it is. What's that? Uh, well, yeah, that's that's related, right? But. Um, it, it, it's, it's certainly recognized in the Christian moral tradition that the, that the person who uh, sincerely and earnestly believes uh, and, ha and has even ha has gone to some work to form their beliefs and, th and therefore sincerely and earnestly believes something that there is a, a level of, of virtue in that. That's uh, not to be. It's not just like oh, you arrived at the wrong conclusion, therefore you're you know worthless. But still. Uh, false belief is is not to be affirmed as a good can never be affirmed as a good as such right and so I would say many modern ways of talking about freedom of conscience in which uh, the the freedom of conscience is seen as a good no matter where it ends up whatever whatever your conscience settles on the fact that it is your conscience settling on it is a good thing to be celebrated Okay, so that's my first kind of controversial thesis. Anyway, so, I mean, it seems like in the, in the early modern period, there's allowance for um, difference of opinion to a certain degree on certain, maybe not audio is the right term, but Christians who agree to the 
agree on Christ might differ on other things, and that has to be allowed because to enforce it is going to just cause uh, undue harm. Right. Yeah, that's something we're going to talk about: is the limitations of what what can be what can be enforced. So, as a, as a principle, then. But but what you're actually talking about is you're talking about enforcing limitations on teaching, as I'm going to get to here, right? Uh, freedom of religious speech is different than freedom of religious belief. Well, how else can you know what someone believes unless they speak it? <laughs> well, so this is this is the, the this is the point. This is the difference between the the. the Early modern Protestant, the early modern Catholic approaches, right? Um, the question is, do you try, do you try to get them to speak it, right? So this is, you know, Elizabeth famously says, "I'm not, I would, I do not wish to make windows into men's souls." So she's like, uh, "You might believe." So I mean, like this is even the, the shift, right? With the I mentioned the oath of allegiance, James, because of the gunpowder plot, and it's ironically the gunpowder plot made the plight of English Catholics much worse, right? Because before that, it was sort of like, look, we know that a lot of them might actually believe that the Pope is the supreme temporal Lord and has authority to excommunicate Elizabeth. But sort of don't ask, don't tell policy generally, right? Look, if you believe that and you haven't said anything about it and you haven't acted on that, then we'll, we'll leave you be. Um, after the uh, gunpowder plot, there's an attempt to know we, we're gonna, we want to force that belief out into the open. Uh, which is more what the uh, the Catholic Inquisition was trying to do. Like, we want to f- find out what your if you actually harbor secret Protestant beliefs, force those into speech, so that then they can be forced out of you. Brad, can I just ask for yep. clarification between point two, clause one, absolute, and I'm keying on the word absolute protection of law, and then what we're talking about here uh, in clause four that. There seems to be some at least tension, if not perhaps inconsistency, between that term absolute and then the idea that it's not protected when it reaches certain conclusions or certain certain erroneous aspects. Would you help me figure okay. out where you're going with Let me, Probably the best thing to do is I'll go ahead and get through the rest of the theses in this section and then we'll yeah. discuss them as such. That's probably. Okay. Um, so. God, so I said we shouldn't defend freedom of conscience on the ground that individuals are sovereigns of their own conscience. Rather, thesis five, God alone is Lord of the conscience such that he alone, he alone has the capacity to co- compel belief. Okay? Uh, God is the only one who actually has the power to compel you to believe something. Um, no human action can directly compel the conscience to adopt or reject a belief. To this extent, the right of freedom of conscience does not so much call for a limitation on human law as it names a limitation inherent in the power of human law. It's almost, it's, it's like indicative rather than imperative, right? So the conscience is, to some extent, it just is free, and any attempts to impinge on that freedom are, are, are sort of uh, self-defeating. Okay. However, that's not to say, if you, you, know, if you said that, it's sort of like, well, it doesn't matter like what we... How much we persecute, because we, you know, we can't violate this principle no matter what we do. However, thesis six, human coercion can attempt to indirectly compel belief, indirectly, and succeed in part, right? I mean, so if we think about this, like, you, you cannot, nobody can just say, uh, I don't want you to believe that thing. Stop believing that thing. And then you just say, oh, okay, fine, I'll stop believing that thing, right? You might stop saying that thing out loud, but you can't stop believing it. However, they can create conditions, surround you with loads of people who all believe the opposite, and so that you start to feel really insecure about your belief, okay? Or they can threaten you with all kinds of horrible punishments. Um, that, that, that latter is actually, you know, less effective generally because, right, it, it, in the sense it just, it heightens the, um, heightens the contradiction so that you're, you may be, again, you might decide to outwardly conform, but it doesn't often just convince you to change your mind, right? The best way to convince you to change your mind is, is more indirect forms of psychological manipulation to, to, to pressure you into it. Okay, so human coercion can indirectly compel belief and succeed in part, but only by doing violence to the nature of the conscience whose nature is to assent freely. 
Insincere belief is not merely valueless, but in religious belief matters, it is of negative value. All right? So insincere belief, in general, in all, is, is valueless. Okay? Um, to beliefs, in some, in some sense, you could say it's... Uh, I mean, we could argue it's a contradiction in terms. Um, they had even sincere belief. But what, what, is it, what does that mean? Does it mean incongruency between actions and belief? It means, um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is a belief. So let, well, let's talk about the relation to religious matters where I would say it's, it's a negative value. Because this is kind of, a, this is the Protestant insight, right? Is to say that... Um, it's attempting to get at what is it about faith that makes faith saving um, and distinguishes saving faith from false forms of faith, right? So there is a, um, a self-consciousness about saving faith, a self-conscious apprehending of its object and willing... I, Augustine has some good line here, right? About like uh, loving what I know, like having knowledge and loving my knowledge and knowing my love of that knowledge, or something like that, right? That's that's like a full fledged sincere sincere belief, right? As opposed to a um, a belief that is sort of elicited um, by. It, it, it floats on the surface of my consciousness as a kind of unexamined belief or, uh, un, or just kind of a, a given that I don't actually embrace and love. I just, I say it, and I'm not just saying it in the sense that I'm like, oh, lying. I'm saying it and I know that it's false. I'm saying it and listening to myself say it and not questioning whether I actually believe it or not, right? I'm just kind of going, kind of, going through the mental motions of believing in it without embracing that belief. And so in matters of faith, in matters of religion, that kind of belief is actually of, of negative value, right? It's actually, that's the, um, that's a source of damnation is to have an insincere faith. It, it seems like some people can actually stray too far in the other direction where they have to have, where like there's some things that we don't necessarily know are correct or not, and that you have to have an opinion about everything. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, the, we don't. You don't. You shouldn't need to have a a deep, sincere belief on every topic. That would be unhealthy. But yes, I was depending uh, on how sweeping your mind view this insincere belief. I would, I would say isn't valueless to the rest of us. Right. 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 So, so there is like some value, and I would say, in certain types of coercion, don't actually buy the goodwill. If there's, a, in fact, all laws, laws coercive to some extent. So, like, we prefer that you don't murder because you don't want to. It's, it's bad, but if you're doing it just because you fear the punishment, that's actually so effective. Right. Right. So right. Well, that's the level of action, right? Um, so I would say insincere belief is socially valuable to the extent that it issues in certain forms of action, right? So I think um, the, the value in insincere belief is not in the belief, but only in the exter externalization of it. So that gets to the later thesis of it. Anyway. Um, okay, so, but on the question of, like, what counts as coercion? Thesis 7, therefore no individual or civil authority should use coercion, that is, terror of bodily harm. This is my attempt to define coercion here. Um, which we can, are you about? To seek to influence religious belief. Instead, they should employ the tools of persuasion. This statement, should be noticed, is not a philosophical datum, but follows from Christian and especially Protestant convictions about the nature of faith. And this is the point I was just saying before. Like, actually, in other religious traditions... It doesn't this doesn't necessarily follow, because in other religious traditions, it may be that by pressuring you to go through the motions, like going through the motions is actually what makes, I, I don't, you know, you know, makes Allah happy, right? Um, and so, therefore, 
why not? Like, why not um, coerce coerce religion in that case, right? Uh, but but for Protestantism, precisely because works are valueless apart from true faith, uh, the reformers argue. They argue for all kinds. This is why they say we don't do persecution. Um, we don't. We don't think that somebody who is, you know, tortured into confessing Jesus is Lord, uh, has actually, you know, had saving faith. Right. So there may be reasons to encourage certain forms of religious action, restrict other forms of religious action, but those reasons are because of their societal benefits, not because of their salvific benefits. Okay, so the line between coercion and persuasion may not always be an easy one to draw. Church establishments often function by tying certain civil privileges to the profession of true beliefs, right? So, for instance, like, you have, you know, in England until 1832, you had to be a Protestant to be elected to Parliament, right? Uh, And certain civil disabilities to the profession of false beliefs, like you had to pay extra taxes or something if you were a Catholic. (laughs) Such disabilities are often misdescribed as assaults on freedom of conscience, by people like John Leland, the American Baptist, uh, or acts of religious coercion, although they rarely rise to this level. That said, they may be imprudent on other grounds. So I want to camp out on this idea a bit, right? So this is what I'm trying to get at. um, That uh, So first of all, I said terror of bodily harm because, uh, and this is, you know, this is something to wrestle with a little bit, and it could possibly endanger this whole line of argument. Certainly, the Catholic would argue well, we appeal to terror of, like, eternal hellfire as a motivation for someone to repent. So how is that any less coercive than appealing to terror of, you know, physical fire, like, you know, right, that I'm about to throw you onto? Well, just physical fire, they're more likely to believe in them seeing a fire. Well, and the distinction, right, would be because, uh, right, the, the the physical terror is an object of sight. The... The spiritual terror is itself an object of faith, and so to to accept the reality of that spiritual threat punishment is its itself requires a sort of initial step of of the act of faith, right? Um, whereas uh, the the physical threat is just a sort of act of brute force upon an uh, an unmoved conscience. <coughs> harm to livelihood, goods, property, because it would be indirect. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that, yeah. So this is the uh, this is the the difficult one. So yeah, when does persuasion become coercion? Right. I mean, our sort of like uh, if we were th- thinking in terms of a spectrum, our sort of like platonic form of coercion is yeah, you know, like burning someone at the stake, and our platonic form of persuasion is, you know, two Oxford dons debating over tea on a, you know, in a railway car, you know. Um, and, you know, one of them, by just sort of pure sweet reason, uh, convincing the other that, you know, he's wrong in his interpretation of Dante or whatever, right? So, but between those two poles lie all kinds of um, emotional appeals, all kinds of um, creations of... implicit threats, forms of insecurity, you know, and all the way down to, you know, um, you know, like, yeah, totally depriving someone, is throwing someone in prison. Is that, is that coercion or is that persuasion? Look, I mean, we're just just trying to, you know, just trying to soften them up a little bit. A couple couple nights in the county jail will soften them up. Just, you know, we even sometimes, you know, use the kind of dark humor, the term, maybe this will persuade him, right? So, What's that? Give him a deal. Yeah, right. Right. Um, so that it, in a sense, because, because, right, if you push it, and then Hobbes makes this argument, right? Hobbes says, well, like, really, what's going on is um, in the most bald act of coercion is you're still being presented with a choice. It's just like you can decide, okay, hey, do I want to, like, be burned at the stake? Or do I want to do this, right? And you can choose. It's just like, you know, whichever one you, you know, um, you want more. So, um, I've wrestled with this question for like a decade, and I don't think that there's anywhere to actually um, find an essentialized definition. Um, there's a, 
there's a point at which persuasion shades over into what any reasonable person would call coercion, but that point is going to be like very kind of culturally dependent. I mean, the, 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 the bodily harm that would, you know, send any of us, you know, like, you know, just like, oh, do anything you say, you know, might have just been like, you know, what any English schoolboy just got, you know, five times a day, you know, in the 16th century, I don't know, but... Um. So what would you say about something like um, the, um, the making a law in the U.S. that only Christians can be um, senators and president and all that stuff? Like, what would you say? Is, right. that, is that... So, yeah. So what, I, what I'm saying here is that uh, historically, at least, um, that sort of thing saying there are certain civil uh, benefits and certain civil disabilities that are tied to your religious profession, um, those would have been understood as, uh, well, potentially they might not be even attempts at persuasion. They might just be serving certain societal benefits, which we'll get to in a minute. And like, you know, they didn't, they didn't actually, you, you, could, you, could, you could propound those laws and say, look, we do not care if you actually convert to Protestantism. You know, like that's, we don't care if you're just hypocritically, you know, mouthing the oath or whatever. We're just doing this for the sake of public order or whatever. Um, but you could say, no, we're actually, we're trying to, um, certainly in, in Islam, uh, the, the civil disabilities under which non-Muslims function are intended, at least in the little I understand of it, you know, uh, Islam was very successful in stamping out Christianity in uh, the Mediterranean world, but they did so not by, you know, thumbscrews and, and, and the rack, but by just making it very inconvenient to be a Christian. And so it was, it was, it was a form of persuasion, um, you know, harsh persuasion over, over many years, yes. Just thinking about it, is, is there a way to think about this distinction between coercion is that which is individualized, so what I possess as an individual, my body, my mind, my soul, and then forceful persuasion is that which society provides. So a job and other things right. are the social construct, I won't say construct, it's not the right word, but the social things that community provides together. And so there can be some forceful right. use of that to persuade, but I can't go into that which is individually possessed. Yeah. Well, right, the argument would be, right, the, I mean, the, a lot of it depends on what you, where, how far you think natural rights extend. Because the argument historically would have been there are lots of things that are things that you enjoy as privileges from society. The right to vote was, it was not a right to vote, it was the privilege to vote. You, the society could grant you the privilege to vote, but it's, it's not like, you're not just like born with the right to vote. In fact, we're all born with not the right to vote. Uh, and so society can take away those privileges um, if it doesn't think you deserve them. And that's not coercion. But assaulting something that you, you have in yourself before society, that would be coercion. So that would be one way of trying to define it. And that, and that would explain why the kind of then proliferation of natural rights, where we think that we do actually have a natural right to vote. Therefore, the deprivation of the vote on religious grounds is seen as an act of coercion. So, but yeah. so would fam harming family members would kind of be in the gray area in that then, right? Because it's that's not exactly coercion, but it's not... Uh, no, well, I think on this, I, I like this, because I do think, I mean, our intuition would be that is, right? I mean, to say I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, chop off your son's fingers one by one <laughs> until you give in, right? I would, um, you know, for, th that, could be, that could be worse coercion than chopping off, you know, your own, my own fingers, right? That's what they did in the Maccabees, they killed yeah. the first Right, e exactly. But on his, I like his definition, because that is the, the, the family is... It's, is not a privilege granted by society, right? The assault on the family is as direct an assault on you as, as on your body. You're, you're thinking about a lot of these in terms of like uh, acts of coercion, misappropriate. Let's see. You're thinking. Let's see. You you're worried that assaults that would be persuasive or characterized as coercion. I would also think about the other way in terms of persuasions that could be coercive, and and in some sense this depends on how we define conscience because we're kind of operating under this idea that. 
whoever this victim is, they are uh, intellectually astute, they're well-trained, and so they can kind of take a bunch of choices, inspect them, and say, I, I choose this one because it's proper and just. And, and that's, you know, that's how you persuade someone. Um, in reality, persuasion is sometimes, you know, giving 100 million 13-year-olds a device in their hand and running an algorithm to make sure they only see certain mm-hmm. sides of propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's like, is that persuasion or is that coercion? And because in some sense, the mental faculty is, is, passive, is a passive right. recipient. And so it, I start to see it as coercive. So you are right. Yeah. Well, you could, I mean, maybe the issue there would be the fact that it's subconscious, right? That if um, our, our idea of persuasion is that one is, one is being presented with arguments on some level, right? It doesn't mean it's like a purely rational thing. But one is being, I'm going to draw this out and then I'm going to probably reject it. But, um, you know, I could say implicitly the idea of persuasion is that one has uh, some opportunity to, to, to consciously evaluate what is being given. Whereas if you are, we distinguish between manipulation, we might not say coercion, but we kind of distinguish manipulation from persuasion. We, someone is doing something to your mind that you are totally unaware of and therefore sort of unable to resist. You know, and therefore manipulation we see as being as bad as coercion and being distinct from persuasion. Yeah. I also thought about propaganda with this because I think like to me, the difference between coercion and persuasion has to do with freedom, which I know is a super loaded word for ritual capitalists, but you know, coercion, you are not choosing the belief. You're just choosing survival. So there's no there's no decision to believe anything. You're just it's just pure, you know, and also it's harder for your needs, you know, you're just like, how can I get out of this situation? Whereas persuasion implies that the person actually has a choice. And I would argue that a bunch of you know nine-year-olds with the TikTok algorithm. There's no choice there. I, I, I like your saying, but I might modify it a little bit. I think you're talking about willful assent of the proposition versus willful assent of something else that you go through the proposition. So coercion, we're willfully assenting to something basically because I want to. I want it to stop, right? So mm-hmm. I go through the thing I have to do to get to what I want, and that's why I think. Whereas. We would say freedom of choice is where I willfully assent to something. That's what persuasion allows me to do. Mm-hmm. But here's where I, I would argue manipulation is still bringing about willful assent. You only have half the story, mm-hmm. but you're still willfully assenting to the half that you have. And you can willfully change that assent upon future information. And so at least my, my presupposition that I'm coming from here is I agree with coercion, I agree with persuasion, but I, I, I'm like you, I would define coercion pretty strictly. Like mm-hmm. it's a very, coercion is very limited and persuasion encompasses legal actions yeah. and other things. Right. And I would even argue it encompasses manipulation. Potentially, sure. right. right, 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 right. So in, in distinguishing coercion from persuasion, we're not saying because coercion is always bad, persuasion is always good, right? right. So there are, Right. There are certainly bad forms of persuasion, Absolutely. right? So willful assent, I think, might be get, it was at least where I would be comfortable in saying what you're saying, but it, in corporate, but it would disagree with you on the issue of, of misinformation or propaganda, right? Propaganda would present a willful assent, but it might not be a factual willful assent. But that's different than coercion in my mind, um, you know? And so then you get the question of, is this the best type of persuasion or is it the right type of persuasion? Um, so I don't, I don't know. That might be a better way to think about it than just coercion persuasion, but willful assent versus assent as an intermediary to a subsequent goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about things that are like, that you don't know the outcome of? For instance, the city's besieged and the person says, we're like, uh, if, you, if you surrender to us, then we'll be merciful, right? You don't know if you're actually going to be conquered. So, like, is that... Hmm. What would that be? I don't know. That's a good one. We'll talk about that later. But let's move on. Um, let's get the other ones on the table, and then we might, we might or might not have time to circle back to this one. So, freedom of religious speech, then. Theses 9 through 19. So I'll probably do a few of these and then pause for discussion. I'm going to pause it for each one. I won't get to the whole... 
whole thing before I pause. So nine, although law cannot enforce right belief, it does not follow that it cannot protect right belief. That is to say, your right to hold a heresy, uh, which we would, given that I said above, you don't have a right to, to err, right? I, I would say right here in the narrow, in the legal sense, your, your legal, your immunity, your legal immunity in holding a heresy, right? Which is perhaps a better language than right, really. But um, your, 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 yeah. your immunity in holding a heresy does not necessarily entail a right to infect others with it. In Protestant countries, constraints on freedom of religious speech were often justified on the basis of protecting right belief, right? So this, I mean, most famous example, Calvin and Servetus, um, this was, uh, again, Calvin defended the burning of Servetus on somewhat on distinct grounds than the... Uh, the burnings of, this, of the Spanish Inquisition, right? And I don't want to just be like, I, I know that, like, the Spanish Inquisition has been blown out of proportion. It's not like they were just, like, torturing and burning people every day. But, but they did do it some, okay? And, and, the, and the reasoning behind it really was direct religious conversion to sort of, like, terrify them into recanting, right? Um, for Calvin, that was not the logic. It was not when I going to try to terrify Servetus into, into recanting, because that a, recant- a recantation gained in that way would be valueless for his soul, right? It was, this guy's so dangerous. And, and of course, Calvin didn't actually want to burn him for that reason. Uh, Cal- they just burned him because that's what they were accustomed to doing. They had been, you know, this is what you did to false teachers. You burned him. And so the Genevans hadn't really quite, you know, gotten out of that mentality. But Calvin's like, no, we need to execute him because this teaching is so dangerous, it will harm other people's souls. And so, like... It's just like you know, it's like a mass murderer. The same reason you'd execute a mass murderer is to keep him from you know murdering more people. Um, you don't want this guy murdering more people's souls. So that uh, that most extreme action of Protestant uh, persecution was justified on those grounds, right? Protecting uh, right belief. Now, um, <clears throat> and what I want to get at here is, while I'm not trying to uh, justify the burning of Servetus or suggest that we, we uh, or even you know, the beheading of Servetus, um, or n- encourage that, that we move back in that direction, I do want to suggest that the logic on which it's justified is not, that e- is not so easily dismissed. Okay? Since Thesis 10, since speech is an action which affects the community, its regulation falls in principle within the right of the civil magistrate. And speech that is harmful to other members of the community may, in principle, be curtailed. Okay, this is even within our extremely permissive free speech regime in modern America, at least formally legally permissive, but increasingly socially non-permissive. But uh, we have, you know, the fire in a crowded theater exception, whereas that there are certain kinds of speech that, in certain contexts, uh, have posed such a clear and present danger to those around you that uh, you can be prevented and you're punished in law for, for that form of speech. And what's interesting is that even on a, like a libertarian premises, this sort of follows, right? The harm, if you're going to adopt the harm principle, uh, people often say they're using the harm principle and then they add on this idea that the only thing they really, they kind of smuggle in this idea of just like bodily harm only or something. But why, like why, bod- why is bodily harm necessarily worse than other kinds of harm? I mean, arguably... There are lots of forms of harm worse than bodily harm. And so if indeed, even if you said on a libertarian premise that you're, oh, the law is only supposed to intervene when someone is being harmed, well, someone can definitely be harmed by certain kinds of false speech. So if you believe that we can reasonably know, you know, true doctrine, uh, and that we can therefore reasonably know that what Servetus is offering is not that and is going to seriously harm other members of society then it follows that the, the magistrate can uh, curtail that speech. Okay. Thus, 11, just restating what we kind of already said, freedom of religious speech cannot be absolutely guaranteed by law as a matter of timeless principle. Just, would, so, therefore, any... Um, let's see here. I was just going to say, so what I'm going to argue then is Freedom of religious speech, to the extent that it can be justified, would have to be grounded, justified on prudential grounds, not on kind of absolute grounds, the way I was trying to justify freedom of conscience. So pause here for any comment or questions.
How are we for time? Wait a minute. No. Are we supposed to stop in 15 minutes? Oh my gosh. What? You guys have been a great audience. You've been interacting a lot. I'm so sorry. Wow. We're just having too much fun here. I'm just going to have to rattle off the other ones. Um, tell me what you want me to do. Sounds good. Sounds good. Good idea. No, 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 no. I just want to clarify real quickly if you, what you meant was it cannot on principle or it cannot like on the ground Uh, I'm saying there's no um, it doesn't seem there's no coherent principle to which you could appeal to say that uh, religious speech should always be protected Um, because some religious speech could be so obviously harmful that it needs to be suppressed at least in a certain we should see if anyone has to leave yeah we can just keep going okay no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that to you okay you're not only adding a layer from consciousness to speech and therefore going into an external, but that also then entails that it's going individual to common good, individual good, common good. Right, right. Okay, I'll move through the rest of these fairly quickly and just pausing. I'm so sorry. I really, I, I guess I've lost my capacity to read old-fashioned clocks. <laughs> Do you understand religious speech to encompass explicitly atheist speech as well? Um... Well, I would say, yeah, I mean, explicitly atheist speech is, uh, it is relig- it's, it's making religious claims, anti-religious claims, right? But so, if that's a, a, something that is more regulable in principle than, uh, I don't know, disagreements about the nature of the Trinity or differences about transcendentialism. Right, right. Well, and, and that was historically often done, right, was to limit... Um, you know, they allowed for a fair bit of variety of religious speech, including things that they were, you know, thought were were wrong, um, but not open atheism. The argument for that, so that there could, there are two lines of distinction you could make. You could say we're going to allow for freedom of religious speech in things that we don't actually think are harmful to someone's eternal soul. We think they're wrong doctrines, but they're not essential doctrines, and so this false teacher, this teacher is wrong. But they're not doing massive harm to anyone through this false teaching, so we allow it. Um, the second would be to uh, separate all concern, all eternal concern, and say, uh, look, we're not going to worry about spiritual harm done by speech. That's, that's sort of God's business. He can protect people's souls if he needs to. Um, but atheism undermines the very foundations of civil society, and because the argument is that people can't make oaths if they can't. They swear an oath, but why would they keep their oath if they're an atheist? So atheism is like, you know, it's anarchy. I mean, it's like preaching anarchy. So therefore, we can't allow atheism. That was often the reason. Uh, to, to elaborate on that. Yes? Is that I think this is a, a, something that's often really confused. So the, the liberal or classical liberal thing is that, well, we're really interested in truth because we really want to get to heaven. And the best way to get truth is, is that if we just allow as many opinions out there possible, then the truth will become more obvious. Mm. But it's based on the claim of what's going to get us to heaven, or what's more true, and not on what's, what do we need on the ground here for, for civil society. Um, and so I, I yeah, and you know, what's interesting is you read uh, Madison's defi- uh, argument for religious liberty, uh, yeah, and it, it, it throws together all these different arguments. Yeah. Like he's, he's yeah. cleverly trying to appeal to, because some of them are, like appealing to religious believers, Look, the best way to get people to be true religious believers is to give space for error so that like, truth can defend itself against error and people can then be confirmed in their faith and blah, 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 blah. Um, but then he also gives these, these arguments that are based on just purely civil peace or based on the, the good of the autonomy of the will even. So, Okay, um, so historically it was often argued that freedom of religious speech should not be protected by law outside certain boundaries because the society as a whole owed a duty of obedience to God, which must include the duty to speak rightly about him and to avoid blasphemy. Okay, and this is gesturing. This is where I gesture at this idea of corporate religious liberty, the, um, the, the freedom of the body politic to rightly honor God as body politic. Thirteen. Even if this is true, however, since Hooker, uh, channeling Aristotle, says it is first necessary to live before we can live well, the society may have to tolerate freedom of religious speech if it cannot be safely curtailed. Human law cannot prohibit all vices. <laughs> Classic Thomas point brought up last night. So this must be a judgment of prudence. Now, 
highlighting, to frame it in these terms is to, is to frame it really in terms of the distinctions often made between toleration, religious toleration, and religious liberty. Religious toleration is saying, like, well, it's kind of bad that you're, you know, a Buddhist, but we'll, we'll let you do it. And religious liberty says, you're a Buddhist, that's great. We, we celebrate your Buddhism, right? Um, I, I mean, that's how I would define the distinction. I know it, on that way of defining it, I would say, how could any Christian actually affirm religious liberty? I know Andrew Walker wouldn't define it that way, I don't think, because he would celebrate religious liberty. But it seems to me that really we have to, to speak coherently, we really do have to speak in terms of religious toleration because we're acknowledging that it is actually a vice, it's just maybe one that the magistrate can't curtail. Yeah. I, think, I think in a roundabout way, at least in, in Walker's new book, he would maybe agree with you begrudgingly because he does say religious, he celebrates religious liberty as a celebration of diversity as itself a common good, just to have it. Right. right. So there's no there's no other end in view than the exercise of religious liberty to full extent. Harm principle insert. That's it. That's the limiting principle. I actually think he would like what you said about religious liberty. Somewhat jokingly, is basically what he thinks. Okay. Yeah. Well. Uh, so I, we're doing an event. Yeah. Probably. Probably he and I are going to debate on this okay. at a Davenant event in Minneapolis in April. So, anyway. But I haven't actually read his book yet. This is sort of preparatory to that. It's been on my shelf for a while. Okay. Um, so if freedom of religious speech is to be protected by law, then it must be either on the ground that it is always prudent so to do, and thus, interestingly, if you say that, that past societies that did not protect this freedom were always wrong. Right? If you're saying it's always prudent to protect freedom of religious speech, then the fact that they didn't do it in you know, 17th century Geneva or whatever means they were bad and we are good. And one of the things I want to do is at least open up the question. It's possible that societies in the past did things differently that would, they would be wrong if we did it, but it wasn't necessarily wrong for them to do it, given the, the context. Okay, or on the ground that it is prudent to do so under certain circumstances, which leaves room to celebrate our own liberties without necessarily blaming past restrictions. Okay. This is where you need to follow along with your text carefully here. So arguments for the prudence of the prudence of permitting free religious speech include A, the benefits that accrue to right belief from having to defend itself against errors. This is one of the classic million arguments, right? If if you let fault, you know, er, and heresy is what's the statement about like heresy being the you know, what is sharpen the sword of orthodoxy or whatever, right? Um, B, the benefits that accrue to right belief from having to exercise itself in the face of the possibility of error. This is slightly distinct, sounds similar to the first. But in the first, I'm getting at the idea that the content of truth will be brought into sharper relief by its conflict with error. The second, which Mill also makes this argument, I believe, is that uh, my point about sincerity of belief is important, right? And um, if you just, if you're a Christian in a society where, like, if you're a you know, this is what Kierkegaard is dealing with. If you're a Lutheran in a society where absolutely everyone is a Lutheran and nobody would, why would anyone be anything else, then your Lutheran convictions aren't held with any kind of really self-conscious sincerity. But if they're forced to defend themselves regularly, then they are. So the, the objective content of truth is strengthened and the subjective appropriation of truth is strengthened by conflict with error. These are both good reasons to celebrate diversity. All right. C, the opportunities presented by open debate for helping to correct and defeat error. Okay, so error is going to be out there, and you'd much rather, if people are going to be secretly heretics, you'd rather they articulated their heresy, so then you found out they're heretics, so then you could correct them, right? Uh, D, oh wow, we skip E. Interesting. Okay, but D, the dangers of encouraging hypocrisy, um, which might be very similar to B, but anyway. Um, e, which should be E, but is actually F. Okay. The difficulty for even a well-intentioned and godly magistrate to accurately draw the boundaries between truth and error, right? So this is the argument. Okay, sure, there is an objective truth, but who knows what it is. Uh, you don't have to go full-on relativist to say, okay, look, even if we think that you know, there is a, an ascertainable good Still, like, is it, is it the formula of Concord, or is it the Westminster Confession of Faith, or is it the London Baptist Confession? There's, like, let's not empower the magistrate with too much ability to 
police the boundaries because we're not actually entirely sure what the boundaries are. Right? Um, G, a precedent, and this is an argument that would be often used now, a precedent of restrictions on religious freedom may be used against the faithful by an unfaithful magistrate. Right? If you empower the magistrate to curtail the freedom of the bad guys, then what if you've got a bad magistrate? He's going to use that same power to curtail your freedom. And this is, you know, historically how it often happened. I mean, you had different minority groups that were, like, having their f- religious freedom curtailed. Then they got on top, and then they were just as zealous in preventing the freedom of their opponents. And then, you know, after some seesawing, and then it was like, you know, maybe we should make a truce here, and, like, neither of us should actually use the power this way. H is the danger that such restrictions will be unenforceable, undermine the authority of law, and or lead to civil turmoil. This is basically what Althusius camps out on. He's like, like yes, ideally the magistrates should say, like, get rid of all the Catholics, uh, not by exterminating them, but just by like, like pressuring them to immigrate and whatever. Uh, but if there's already like a bunch of Catholics in the country, that's probably not going to be feasible. It's going to be really dangerous, civil war, whatever. You know, so you know, you've got to allow the error for the sake of civil peace. Arguments against the prudence of permitting free religious speech, and we're just going to leave religious exercise out for, you know, you guys to reflect on at home later on, I guess. But Okay, so thesis 16, arguments against the prudence of permitting free religious speech include A, this is a really interesting one that is big, big, <laughs> the early modern period, and then just totally drops off the radar, right? If God threatens to judge nations for false teaching and blasphemy, the magistrate has a responsibility for the civic welfare of his people to forbid conduct that may invite divine judgment. Uh, This is like the Puritans in the 1580s are like, uh, bishops are really bad, and God's going to judge us for having bishops. And you just wait. He's sending the Spanish to judge us for all the corruption. It's not just the bisons. It's also the fact that he's the sign of the cross and baptism of Pharisees. So, like, this is, this is a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God, and he's going to punish us. The Bible says he will punish, you know, ungodly nations. Then the Spanish Armada gets soundly trounced, and it's like, well, obviously God isn't too angry at us. So the Puritans lost a lot of their steam after that, right? But this idea that, like, if God judges ungodly nations, then, like, forget everything else. Like, I, you know, I should, I have a responsibility as a magistrate to prevent, if I can, prevent earthquakes and hurricanes and, and you know, plagues, then that would be a good thing to do, right? Yeah? Okay. The, uh, B, in a community unaccustomed to it, permission of false views will be perceived as endorsement of them, right? So we nowadays are like, look, just because the magistrate tolerates these things doesn't mean he's endorsing them. But, you know, if you're in 16th century Geneva, mere toleration will be seen as endorsement, right? So you have to kind of like gradually lead people along to accept that people might be, you know, selling books on the street corner that are not actively approved, you know, encouraged. C, in a community unaccustomed to it, or in time of war and emergency, the open promotion of views that contradict the values of the community will lead to the eruption of violence. Right, this is a big issue in early modern Europe after the Reformation. Part of the reason that you curtail religious liberty is because, not because the magistrate is deeply freaked out about the fact that um, you know, there might be someone celebrating the Mass, but that he knows that like, there's going to be local townspeople who if they find out someone's celebrating the Mass, they're going to like, freak out and they're going like, to burn down the church and start burning down. Every, you know. So you have these riots because people can't handle religious diversity. So um, again, you have to kind of do baby steps before it even becomes plausible. And a lot of these things, by the way, apply to religious exercise as well as religious speech. So we are getting a fair bit of that in, even though we're not going to get to those. Okay, um, another is that uh, in any community, it will shake the faith of the weaker-minded and leave them easily confused. You know, and certainly that's a fair point in our modern world, the, the proliferation of just all kinds of evil ideas that are, you know, children have to encounter every form of, of unbelief and, and obscenity, often before they come to adulthood, makes it objectively much more difficult to, uh, to train the next generation in, in, in right belief, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know... It's a cycle, doesn't it? Because then it? if it gets harder, then there's going to be more of yep, yep. Okay, E, too much proliferation of diverse views will gradually create a sense that truth itself is relative and of little importance. Obviously a problem we are also facing today. 
F, that since bad beliefs readily generate bad actions, a doorway will be open to the proliferation of vice and wickedness. Okay. So, yep, yep, I know. I'm, I'm going to, I'm just wrapping up this section and then I'm going to stop. So, yep, 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 yep. Yep. So, um, those I think are a pretty good summary. I'd be interested you know, if you email me after think of other arguments on either side, but summary of the arguments for and against uh, religious freedom. And I would say in our present society, argument G in favor, which is to say a precedent of restrictions on religious freedom may be used against the faithful by an unfaithful magistrate. That's a really, like, you know, since we don't really have that many faithful magistrates, it doesn't really make sense to be encouraging the empowerment of the magistrate with and this is the argument of some like Vermeule, right? It's like, you know, he's basically saying like, hey, if we could get like the papal legate in charge, that'd be great. But like, what are the odds it's going to happen? So maybe we should just not give the president of the United States that power. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, let's start with get some good cardinals before we even, you know, okay. Um, in the past, arguments B and C against free religious speech and exercise were perhaps weighty enough to render significant restrictions on freedom of religious speech prudent. Um, I'll just skip 18 and say, protection of speech need not entail guaranteeing equal opportunity for all forms of speech. It is entirely a- appropriate to privilege certain forms of speech deemed to be more true, good, and beautiful while still permitting some space for expression of views deemed false and vicious. So this is certainly in the earlier American legal tradition, freedom of speech uh, didn't mean like every form of speech should have equal airtime, equal opportunity to get before the public. Or, you know, it might be like, okay, look, if you can, if you can you know, sell that ridiculous newspaper uh, and you can find people willing to subscribe to it, fine, but... We're not going to extend to you. We're not going to feel the need to extend all the same privileges to you that we would to uh, the the respectable, uh, you know, Christian journalist or something. So, all right. Sorry, I uh, totally misjudged how much content there was here. But um, I actually thought there was going to be too much. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I appreciate your. Exploring some of these with me, and particularly the, the ones we had time to interact more back and forth, since you guys have this in hand, and I'll send you the document as well. Like I said, this is something that I'm working through actively and will be over the next few months. So I would really, really appreciate feedback from any of you on places where this can be refined. So thanks a bunch. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.